Tandem Investment Advisors present Tandem Talk, a quarterly financial podcast hosted by Tandem President and Founder John Carew, with additional commentary provided by Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Tandem Talk, episode number seven, our podcast brought to you from downtown Charleston, South Carolina. I'm John Carew, your podcast host. I'm joined by our investment team of Billy Little. Hello, everyone. Ben Carew. Hey, how's it going? And Jordan Watson. Hey, how's everyone doing? So, today was an interesting day in the market. It's been an interesting start to the year. Um, We have not met together in this uh, venue since the middle of November, so there's a lot that happened. I'd like to get right into it. Ordinarily, we sort of go tandem, markets, interesting, and so on, but I just think it's all so intertwined. Why don't we just start with a market update and the current investment landscape? This has nothing necessarily to do with tandem, but let's talk topical. Who's got some thoughts? I think it's important to start off where we ended last middle of November was the most recent tandem talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things we harped on a good bit was a return to volatility. And we have seen that in spades at, at this point. You know, prior to uh, the previous tandem talk and really previous prior to Thanksgiving when volatility kind of really re-entered the market, we went 14, 15 month period without, we saw one 5% drawdown that was in the beginning of the fall. But prior to that, it was a very, very low volatile investment equity environment. Now we've seen many 5% drawdowns, rallies, drawdowns, rallies. From peak to trough, we've gone down, I think, 12% in the S&P. So it's here. Volatility is, has definitely come roaring back into the market. Yeah, to be clear, from peak to trough, down almost 12%. But as of today's close, and this is... February the 10th, where, well, I don't know about today's close. Going into today, Markets, we were, like, we're within 4% of So it's, it hasn't been... We've clawed back half of half of where we, we fell, kind of the intraday low in, in January. We've clawed back half of that. Right. And I think we ended the year with um, sort of the maximum intraday trading range, sort of price volatility of less than 1%. I think we're at like 0.97% or something like that. In January, we were over 2% from high to low intraday, right? Absolutely. And I was going to mention this. Jordan is actually the the king of facts, so he might already have this in his bag. But in 2021, from the start of the year to when I kind of measure volatility is re-entering the market around Thanksgiving, the the intraday high to low S&P range was roughly 37 points. Since that point, since the week of Thanksgiving to today, it has essentially doubled. We're around 71 points from high to low intraday. Um, so that just speaks to just the sheer volume and intraday volume that we're seeing. And we saw it today. Um, the Se- market ended... 71 points on the S&P? S&P 500. Intraday. Correct. So that's roughly... Percent that, that, that's like a 600-point Dow move, just to put that yes. in... In terms for people who who know the Dow and not the S and P, that's like a six hundred point intraday Dow move from peak to trough. That's impressive. We did talk a lot about volatility last time, um, but for those who might not have gone back and 
preparation for listening to this podcast, listen to episode six. Let's just sort of reintroduce why we thought volatility would be coming and why it is actually here. We did call it, actually, we, as in you, Billy, called it. So what is causing it? What did we think would cause it? And is, in, is that, in fact, what is, what is with us now? It is. I think there are two, two factors there. We, you know, one, one factor was you're coming off an historically low volatile time period. And so you kind of stretch the rubber band in one way, it's going to go kind of in the equal and opposite direction, right? So, and you saw that in 2017, and we saw that in 2018. And that was kind of the setup that I that I referred to for the past couple of months is what you're seeing now, is you went from very low volatile time period to now an extremely, or a very high volatile time period. But you've also seen a removal of monetary policy accommodation. You've seen fiscal policy not get on track the way that um, I think government was hoping that it would. And so when you're seeing the Fed now, we'll, we'll, I think we're going to touch on this in, in a few minutes, but you see the Fed possibly hiking five, six, seven times this year as, as expectations and, and possibly also going down the path of quantitative tightening. You're removing all the uh, monetary support that was in the market propping everything up now you're removing that so you're just going to you're gonna have to you're gonna have a, a flight to safety in during that time period i think that's spot on i know that we're going to get into the fed i'm sure for a lot for a lot of this podcast but a lot of the sort of action coming out of the federal reserve other central banks as well as some of the macro backdrop is contributing to these rising yields right which we've seen i mean it's been happening for a while now but it's really picked up steam of late it seems uh, and I feel like that's driving a lot of the move that we're seeing. What are you seeing sort of get beat up in the marketplace? Well, it's it's the high growth names, right? And we've talked extensively, whether it be through the podcast or through various commentary pieces over the years, about the correlation between yields and growth names. Falling yields are good for growth. Rising yields are bad for growth. And so those are some of the stocks that have really been winners for, gosh, I don't know, the past, feels like the past decade, but at least since coming out of COVID at the very least, those have been some of the best performing names, right? And now you're seeing those valuations start to sort of return to normal. I think that over the past 18 months, we saw this super abnormal time period, right? Where you had super low rates, tons of fiscal stimulus coming into play. Tons and of monetary. Ton of, tons of monetary. Right? I mean, it was just this perfect storm that led to these really irregular markets where rates were zero and valuations were, were very, very high. And now you're starting to return to whatever normal is. I don't even know if we know what normal is coming out of the financial crisis, but whatever normal is, we're starting to return to that some. You and I think that, that was 12 years ago. It's crazy, isn't it? But I just feel like we're returning to normal. And part of that is a little bit more normal volatility. I mean, it's what we have seen in 2017, like you said, was abnormal. What you saw in 2021 was abnormal. This is a little bit more normal, though it doesn't necessarily feel normal. That's good perspective. It really is, from an historical standpoint, normal. We just have gotten away from this for so long because we've been dousing everything with a fire hose of fiscal policy, which is government spending approved by Congress, and monetary policy, which is Federal Reserve spending approved by no one elected. And so, did I say that? Anyway, um, so <laughs> let me, I know, I know the Fed is the hot topic, 
just to bring the listening audience up to speed, to give them some context. Today we had the Federal Reserve did nothing formally, but we had some interesting comments. The market, Ben, you're going to get into in a little bit what they're pricing in in terms of expectations for rate hikes. Fed Governor Bullard um, said he would like to see a 100 basis point, which is, for those who don't speak basis points, that's a one percentage point increase in the Federal Reserve's Fed funds rate. We are at what right now? 25 basis points? Zero to 25. So we're looking at a quadrupling of the current rate, but the end rate would be 125 basis points max, right? Mm -hmm. So not a dramatically high rate, but a dramatic change. That's not Fed policy, but Bullard said that he would he would support that. Right. I want to I just throw one other thing into the mix before we dive into that. What I think doesn't get talked about enough is we were getting a double barrel effect of liquidity in the world because the Fed and Congress were just dumping gas on the fire, right? But legislatively, that dried up a while ago. Unless I'm just totally blanking on something that has passed recently, I know they've spent trillions of dollars, but the latest round of proposals has gone nowhere, correct? Correct. The latest, the kind of new, f- new fiscal stimulus package. I mean, you, had, um, you had some tax credits finally roll off in December, January. You still have um, student loans being deferred out to, I think, April or May. That's been deferred for the fourth time. That's still a, a significant tailwind to consumers is if you're not having to spend that's a three, lot of money three four yeah. five hundred dollars on student loans a month that's a that's a lot of money that, in your pocket jordan made that point several podcasts ago mm-hmm. and i think that really is important that people with student debt are getting a reprieve and the average cost of student loans a month is four hundred dollars a month four hundred dollars a month so that's like getting a stimulus check for four hundred dollars a month and we're now into our we're going 20th month? Two, two, two years. years of yeah. doing that. Yes. That's, a, that's, that's helpful. So the reason I wanted to start with that is because while, while it hasn't all been taken away, the first punch bowl, which is fiscal policy, the government spending, certainly it is not contracting by any stretch of the imagination, but any expectation of further increases has to be tempered, right? It's not contracting. It, you know, M2 money supply, what has kind of been thrown into cash, kind of just thrown into um, the economy is, is not, not necessarily contracting, but the rate of change in its growth has come down. Substantially. I mean, I think at the start of 2021, it was what, 80% year over year growth on M2 and now at the end of last year, maybe it was down into the teens, maybe Absolutely. around 20%. Yeah. So still it's growing. still growing. And it's, it's, the, same growing you know, the, same it's the same as the Fed balance sheet, right? They're still, as of today, they're still buying mortgage, mortgage-backed securities. They're still buying treasuries. But it was interesting. I mean, Mester came out the other day and said that she would support outright sales of mortgage-backed securities and reposition their portfolio back to just treasuries. That would have some ramifications on... I tell Things you, like the housing market and whatnot too. I mean, oh, just absolutely. maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but just absolutely. sort of interesting. And you saw mortgage rates for the first time in I forget how north long. North of four two years, north yeah. of four percent. North of four percent. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's four percent is is still that'll historically housing, very low. That'll prick a housing bubble. But going from two and a half, three mm-hmm. to four, that'll eat into it. Billy, mm-hmm. to your point oh, earlier as well about the Fed still being accommodative, they are still purchasing securities. Rates are still at zero. So they're still highly accommodative in a historical context. I think what's interesting is the market has done a significant amount of tightening for the Fed. So not to cut you off, Jordan, but um, I think that's a great point and a good place to pivot. We had both guns ablazing, and the congressional side, the fiscal side, is tapering, still growing, tapering. And now the market, as you point out astutely, Jordan, is sort of, I would go so far as to say forcing the Fed's hand. You know, the, the, the Fed seemed perfectly willing to let things run their course. This was transitory and all that stuff. But the market didn't buy into it. So why don't we pivot right here and let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is the Fed, interest rates, yields, inflation, all of that stuff that is sort of scaring or giving pause to equity investors. Who, who has a te- Jordan, do you want to go? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. If you just look at what shorter term yields are doing, we're seeing the three month treasury yield creep higher. I think it's now at near 40 basis points. Um, you're seeing the probability of rate hikes this year, Billy, I think you mentioned earlier, now five, six, even seven times. John, yeah, do you- a 25% chance of six hikes by November? Yeah. And maybe f- a 50% chance of a 50 basis point hike in March. Yeah. I think Bank of, Bank of America is saying seven. So you have a lot of rate hikes potentially on the table. I think that the Just chance... out of curiosity, six months ago, what was the expectation for a rate hike? Uh, probably close to zero for yeah. that many rate hikes. I mean, I know, yeah. I'm pretty sure the Fed, you know, the, the dot plot was not, was showing maybe... 2023, one, right? One interest rate hike at the back end of 2022. Right and then ramping up to 20 in 2020. Actually, I almost kind of felt like the Fed was the one to really kick things off. I mean, they came out, the market was sort of starting to talk about it, and then the Fed was like, no, we have four on the table for next year. Oh, and yeah. That's and that's when it and that's, really... And that all like, happened in that beginning, right. middle November time period when they came out. Um, and what did Chairman Powell say? I mean, that's when they started talking about possibly tapering mm-hmm. at that time. And then three weeks later, it was... a yeah, we're going to taper at, you know, be done, be finished in, in June. And then it got sped up three weeks later. You know, so I think was, that that is and that's what's interesting what in the marketplace right now. I mean, the Fed, even if you're talking about six, seven hikes, that's a lot compared to where we're coming from. But you're still not talking about this just massive rise in yields, right? I mean, you're just talking about getting up to 2%, basically, is the terminal rate that they're talking about. I think what is sort of an underrated risk right now is the balance sheet and the tapering and the runoff of that. And Mester talking about actually selling securities and Powell talking about being more aggressive because that is just, what did he say, significantly too large? That's what I think is throwing the market sort of for a tizzy. Not so much, is it five, is it six, is it seven? It's the balance sheet. So let let me just just stop us all right there and and make sure that the listener is, is following what we're saying. Traditionally, pre-financial crisis, the Fed had one big tool in their arsenal, and that was to raise or lower interest rates. If they feared inflation and the economy getting too hot, they would raise rates. If they were fearing a recession or the economy was slowing down, they would lower rates. But once they got to zero, (laughs) they needed a new tool. And so they started buying 
U.S. Treasury bonds, actually U.S. Treasury bills and notes, and mortgages. And so their balance sheet swelled. The Fed printed money and bought virtually everything the Treasury issued. And so their balance sheet went from roughly 900 billion to how many trillion? To seven, seven north of seven or eight. So yeah. to be clear, when we talk about rate height, rate rate cuts, B of A suggested seven rate cuts this year. Hikes, rate hikes. Hikes, sorry. That's the traditional tool. The Federal Reserve is still buying bonds. Their balance sheet is still expanding. And now Fed members are suggesting that not only should they stop buying bonds, which as those bonds mature would serve to shrink the Fed's balance sheet over time. Mm -hmm. We have one Fed member actually talking about selling these bonds, which would be very dramatic. And if I recall correctly, the market has pitched a fit when the Fed messed with its balance sheet Mm -hmm. much more dramatically Mm -hmm. than when the Fed threatened to raise rates. That's what happened in 2018. Right. That's exactly exactly what happened. It's almost, it's eerily similar to the comments that Powell made just now in January. He said the balance sheet needs to come down in size. And he almost sort of alluded, Jordan, I think that you were actually talking about in the trading room to pick up on this if you want. But in 2018, his misstep was that he said that the balance sheet reduction was on autopilot. And the market freaked out in Q4 of 2018. And that's when we sort of had that just sort of bloody Christmas market, right? On Mm -hmm. Christmas Eve going into that. I mean, it started that whole thing. And it was a mishap, right? Everybody knew that Powell misspoke. I mean, it was all anybody talked about. It seemed all of December, gosh, he really stepped in it there. And he learned from that. And now... Maybe he had a short-term memory. Yeah, yeah, just recently said that the balance sheet roll-off is running in the background. So basically another way of saying it's on autopilot. It's not their main focus. I think one thing that would be sort of interesting too, I mean, I feel like we're getting kind of in the weeds and pretty technical on some of these things. It's just talking about okay. what it sort of means. Yeah. And I feel like what we're seeing that you can actually see and feel in a portfolio on a daily basis is the short end is rising. I mean, Jordan, you were talking about that. Yeah. But the back end isn't even moving, is it? The back end of the curve. And so you're seeing these low growth prospects, but you're seeing the, the cost of borrowing rising, right? I mean, that's what an inverted yield curve is. And Jordan, we were talking about it in the trading room just the other day. It's not just that an inverted yield curve has, it has a remarkable track record of predicting recessions, right? But it's not that it's just predictive. It causes it. Right. Because everybody's seeing the low growth and the cost of borrowing is going up. And it's almost this vicious cycle. Are we inverted now? No, but we're getting closer. You're inverted on, and you have been inverted parts of the curve, right? Right. You know, 20s but not and the 30s, traditional. Not the traditional. Which is... Two-year versus 10 years. Two's 10, 30s to 2. But the 2 and 10 spread is is just collapsing. I mean, it was 150 basis points less than a year ago, and now we're at 40. I mean, the spread between... three months ago it was 100 basis points. Which means, right, let's put this in perspective. The spread collapses when the longer-term rates drop relative to the short-term rates, or the short-term rates rise relative to the long-term rates. In this case, rates from the shortest to the longest are all rising, right? Mm-hmm. They're just rising far more dramatically at the shorter the, end. The right? back end isn't really moving that much. I think the 30-year is below, if not where it was a year ago, where it was 10, 11 months ago. It was higher in March But the 10-year is definitely higher. Yes. The 10-year did just sort of break out. But yeah. if you go out far enough, it's actually yeah, lower. Back to kind of where we were a year ago. Right. And so you have the market just telling you that 
it's a super low growth environment that we're going into. Right, because the short end of the curve typically tracks the short-term federal funds rate, right? And the longer end of the curve tracks longer-term GDP expectations, expectations and inflation, inflation expectations, okay. which I think is really in- interesting. The, we, I don't know if we are going to touch on this or someone wants to touch on it, but the in- inflation expectations of the market. Okay, let's do touch on that, Billy. Let's just sort of set the table for that. So the Federal Reserve has two mandates, right? Full employment and stable prices. We are at full employment. So they're off the hook on that one. So guess what they're paying attention to now? Stable prices, which means keeping inflation in check. So Jordan, you said that the market had sort of, and you didn't say this, but I will, bail the Fed out. Right. Because the Fed was very slow to react and the market went ahead and started taking rates higher. Well, the market has sort of backed the Fed into a corner. I think you mentioned it, John. I think the market is forcing the Fed's hand at this point. Mm-hmm. To your point, the Jan- the January jobs report was stronger than everybody anticipated. Payrolls are now almost back to pre-COVID levels. So their maximum employment mandate has been satisfied. And now they can focus all of their might on price stability. So fighting inflation, hiking rates. To your point earlier about Bullard and his 100 basis point increase in rates. I believe that's by June or July, Ben. June. So that would mean four hikes, four 25 basis point it hikes. It could mean one them, hike. Or one. Because or there, meeting. Because yeah. there was a time when Alan Greenspan was Fed chair, when we would raise by any increment. It could be a quarter, it could be a half, it could be a full percentage but point. And it didn't even have to be at the Fed's meeting. They could just decide between meetings. And that's sort of what Bullard was talking about. Yeah. But Greenspan was doing that on the back end of a hiking cycle. That wasn't to start things off, which is a little different this time around. But I don't think that Powell has any issue deviating from history. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, is inflation a problem? It sure seems to be. With, the, <laughs> yeah. with his, what was it, seven and a half year over year yeah. uh, inflation report uh, this morning? Costs go so, up for people. Absolutely. But what's interesting, the way the market is reading it, is that inflation is not going to be this huge problem down the road. Inflation expectations have barely budged over the past three months as, as these CPI and PPI reports keep coming in hotter and hotter and hotter. And what is it, three years, five years out, is just hardly even moving. Absolutely. Which plays into the transitory story, e- right? Exactly, but I think, as Jordan said, they're now backed into a corner where they have to do something, whereas, you know, theoretically, maybe... If if you kind of wait and see, but they can't wait. They can't wait at this at this point. Yeah. But expectations in the markets, you know, if you just look at the dollar, the dollar has, has essentially gone up a little bit. I mean, it's pulled back a little bit over the past couple of weeks, but it's flat to up. A currency does not appreciate in a raging inflationary environment. It just it doesn't. Mm-hmm. A currency is going unless, to depreciate unless everyone else is is got higher out, inflation. Outinflating us, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> you're you're right. But Billy, that's actually something. This is maybe we're going full circle and we're actually moving backwards now, back to the market. It's something that you and I were talking about really interesting. We were talking about what's been working this year and what hasn't. We we're talking about how commodities those are up year to date, right? Which is surprising with the action that the dollar has been doing to see emerging markets also up mm-hmm. this year. Now, emerging markets aren't doing as well as commodities, and that's because of the dollar. But it is interesting, and just conversation that you and I had earlier popped back into mind when we were talking about that. 
I know that's sort of off topic well, now. Well, if we're back to the markets, if we've come full circle and maybe taken a step backwards, why don't we move off of the Fed and inflation for a time being and discuss what is going on in the market, what does well in this type of environment, and what the impact on what we're doing is. I think companies that have pricing power, John, are ones that can hold up well in an inflationary environment. Companies in our portfolio like Republic Services or like Johnson & Johnson, who are able to pass along their higher input costs in the form of price increases to the end consumer. They have fairly inelastic demand, right? The people who use their goods and services need to use their goods and services. And so price hikes are easier to pass on in that type of environment, right? Absolutely. An environment that might not be in that situation, uh, no specific example comes to mind. But if you're a cable company in a city that has five cable companies, it's going to be really hard for you to pass on price increases. But if you own the contract for removing waste from the, you know, trash from the county, you can pass on that cost, right? Right. right. Utility companies with fixed rate increases are going to struggle in a high inflationary environment. I mean, look at energy prices in the UK. I think the UK had to pass legislation so utility companies could raise their electric rates for consumers because they were... Because they had to stop providing power. Right, right. So those stocks tend to struggle in... uh, a high inflationary environment, ones without pricing power. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to look at it. Those companies that have pricing power can hold their own. Look, nobody does well in a high inflationary environment, but consistent demand for your product or service is very helpful. So let's pivot on that. And so if we do have inflation that's here to stay, persistent, it doesn't have to be seven and a half every Hopefully. print, Hopefully. But, but if we have If the Fed can truly turn their attention from full employment to stable pricing, that probably means a higher rate environment, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I've heard countless people say, oh, the government can't afford to let rates go higher because we have too much debt, right? Well, you know, sometimes, as Jordan pointed out earlier, the government doesn't get to pick (laughs) where interest rates are. Because the public is the buyer of all that debt. And if we don't want your debt at 2%, you got to offer it to us at 3 right? That's the way it works. So let's pivot from talking about what does well in the high inflationary environment to what rising rates might look like to profit margins, earnings, how that might look through our lens at our portfolio. Billy, I know in your notes you wanted to talk about margins and valuations. Actually, valuations more than margins, really. I'm just kind of steering you towards margins, yeah. if you don't mind. Um, but but let's have a conversation about that and see if we can't bring this into Tandem's world, which is, to be clear, and just to remind everybody, we're certainly aware of all the stuff that's going on around us, but we are definitely a company-specific fundamental investor looking for businesses that grow through any economic environment. Not businesses that are cheap, businesses that grow. No, you're right. And I touched on this last month in observations. What you've seen in the market so so far this year, really for quite some time now, is you've seen a correction in valuations. You've seen some of the the highest growth or highest multiples in the market, whether it be price sales, price to cash flow, price to earnings. They're the ones that are getting hit the most as rates rise. 
in the lowest absolute valuations are holding up the best. So with that, I mean, you know, we do have companies that are growing spectacularly. Accenture is one of them, right? I mean, Accenture is growing a double digit top line, bottom line. They're expanding their margins. That's a big company to be doing all that too, isn't it? Absolutely. Accenture is down. I'm guessing it's not sustainable. <laughs> it, it might not be. but At least not this rate of growth. But, you know, Accenture this year is down 15 16%. That's not this just high growth, no profit. You know, it's not, it's not the, the name you think in the NASDAQ that's, that's get, hitting the most. But Accenture is getting hurt because they've, they've done so well, especially since COVID during this time. Accenture's down 15, 16 it's just percent this year. compression, right? I mean, but still, you look over the past 12 months, they're still up 33%. Yeah, yeah, you barely even see it if you look out far enough in their chart. Yeah, I mean, some of the, some of the, st- some of the names that we own did so well last year and really in the back half of last year that what you've seen just in this year to date valuation correction is you've seen some of those companies that did so well they're giving back just a fraction of of what they gained last year i was on a call uh a few days ago with a client who observed that we captured more of the market's downside in January than she would have expected us to. And she's right. We did capture more of the market's downside than we might typically do. I want you guys to tell me how you would have thought about this, but let me just tell you what 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 my response was. My response was, you are correct. We finished the year strong, and it seemed like in the first 10 or so days of January, what did well in the in the back end of last year was punished in the in the first 10 trading days or so of this year. And that's a very small sample size. That we are comfortable knowing what we are as managers because come the end of March, we will have been doing this for 31 years. That's a big sample size. And the way I look at it, you guys can, can give a more granular approach, but the way I look at it is, you know, you have an average of what you do over time. And one month or one quarter or even one year doesn't change that. An average is sort of in the middle of a range, right? So how do you look at this recent spate of volatility and rising rates and what seems to be perhaps more than transitory inflation and valuation compression and perhaps profit margin compression? How do you look at that through our lens at Tandem? Ben, you want to, you got something to say about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that when you find yourself in a rising rate environment, if you just look back historically, what you tend to see perform well is cyclicals. And that's not us, right? And that's why you've seen commodities up year to date. It's why you've seen emerging markets up year to date. It's why you've seen value up year to date. I think that there's a, a misconception out there at times when I talk to folks on the phone or in person or on calls about what Tandem is. And Tandem is a core manager who favors growth at an attractive valuation, right? We're not a value manager. We're not a dividend yield strategy either. And so when people think about value, I think they sometimes think about us. When value is made up of a lot of things like banks and energy, those could not be further. I mean, you could not pick something that is less likely to be in a tandem portfolio than what makes up a lot of value. Mm-hmm. And so you've seen really nice performance out of those things that would never find their way into a tandem portfolio. Now, if you look just on a one-month basis or a two-month basis, 
that's been unfortunate, right? I mean, it's what you just sort of said, but that's just a one month or two month basis. I don't think anybody, at least at this table, is investing for one or two months. And I also think it's important that it's very easy and statements come out at end of year and you get one at the the end of a month and ev- so everything and you have is... A, you have a window to look at. Correct. Right? Whereas I think evaluating whether it be performance or a strategy or a manager or anything is looking at regime changes that doesn't necessarily coincide with how a calendar flips. So regime on. change. You're not so, talking about personnel. You're talking about <laughs> things that happen, right? Correct. You're still here, John. <laughs> Just um, checking. <laughs> no, but I think it's, you know, talking about the, in this case, it's the volatility regime, right? We went from a low volatile, I've said it before, we've gone from a low volatile environment to a more high volatile environment. That happened around Thanksgiving. You know, looking at that point in time to where we are today, we track much closer to to where we do on kind of risk return downside capture that yeah. that you know those type of metrics what what happens on any given day week month i mean it's year to date when you're 5 weeks into the year correct yeah i think that's the one thing that that i would just really drive home is that there's no difference from december 31st to january 2nd when markets start trading in this year right i mean it's it's the same thing understood i want to pivot just a little bit obviously the one thing that is truly working is the price of energy right crude oil gasoline at the pump it's all spiking that's pretty dramatic the increase we've seen in price of crude we're roughly 90 dollars a barrel for a commodity that a year and a half ago the seller of it was paying you to take it so we're in businesses, not stocks, businesses, right? Mm-hmm. They sort of control their own destiny. That's not growth nor value. It just is to say that they grow earnings and revenue and cash flow through any economic environment, which means they're not tied to the price of a commodity. They're not in a commodity business typically. They have some competitive advantage. So let's look past what the energy sector is doing and talk about the rest of the investable world. We have, for a very long time now, seen prices go up faster than earnings. We have preached over and over again in everything we write and everything we talk about that earnings and prices are correlated. And so prices can only go up faster than earnings over a sustained period of time if valuations are expanding. PEs, for the lack Mm -hmm. of of a better word, go higher and higher and higher, right? And so we are in a point in time where PEs are pretty high. X energy PEs are starting to contract, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were so at some let's point, 20 talk about years. what that looks like. Broad base PEs are contracting from at the S&P level. I think uh, forward earnings hit maybe 22, 23 times at some point last year. We're closer to 20 times now which is still historically high. But what you're seeing from individual companies, kind of give you an example of something that we recently bought in Visa. Visa is still growing top line, bottom line, cash flow, still growing at low to mid double digits, but their valuation has contracted almost in half since six months ago. That has shown up as something that is attractive to us, which we have now taken an in, in initial position. But you're, you're starting to see that in companies that we own and companies that we've been watching for quite some time now. You say their valuation has been cut in half. That doesn't mean their price has. 
No, no. Valuation, I mean, I think at, at one point they were trading at a, at a Ford multiple of close to 40 times, and they're now closer to 20, 25 times. Which is why we found it compelling, right? Correct. So um, can I sort of switch gears here and say, so Visa is a new name added to the portfolio this quarter. Large right? cap core and equity. That large cap core and equity, not in the mid-cap strategy. We added two names in Q4 last year, right? I don't remember if we added them before or after our last podcast. Before. So we talked was, about it. Oh, it actually, it may have been, it may have been the day of the podcast. So it was right around that time period. Yeah. Remind and me and the forgetful and listeners what they were. <laughs> we added Jack Henry uh-huh. across all three strategies. All strategies. And we added market access across all three strategies. Mm-hmm. And then in October of last year, we also added Qualys in equity and mid cap. So there have been new additions to the portfolio that have just been, I mean, some of those buys were even when the market was still at or near all-time highs, which just sort of goes to show that just because markets are down doesn't mean there is always activity. Sometimes we're buyers when markets are at all-time highs. Sometimes a name is actually expensive when markets are down, but a little off topic. No, I think that's a fine, I think that's a fine point to make. And, and one of the things that I have observed, and, and maybe Jordan can help me out with a fun fact, there was a statistic I saw where in the NASDAQ, Something like over 50% of names were below their 200-day moving average, right? Now, I don't know what the statistic in the S&P 500 is, but, but somebody sent me a newsletter that they wrote, um, and they, they cited the S&P 500, which is actually 505 companies, and the S&P 500 minus the largest five companies. So it was really the S&P 500, not the S&P 495. And for 2021, the S&P 500 obviously was up. But according to this thing that I saw, which isn't gospel, the S&P minus those top companies was actually down. And so what you're having, somebody jump in here and help me out to say this better, but what you're having is as the S&P marched ever higher, fewer and fewer companies were participating in it. The ones that were participating most were the ones that were driving the index's value price higher, which is to say the biggest names in the S&P 500. But the smaller names weren't doing nearly as well. Is that fair to say? And so we have found names at valuations we think compelling because even though the market, quote unquote, hasn't sold off, they had. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's well said. And that's how we do it, right? Okay. Any observations or comments to share about our portfolios in this environment? No, I think we I think we covered a good bit of it. Okay. I have a couple things to say. This is obviously a very interesting time. There's a lot going on in the world. And, you know, I've been doing this professionally since 1985. And there are things that are going on in the world right now that have not happened since then. We got an inflation read today that was the highest since 1982. Mm-hmm. So for most investors that are listening to this, we're entering at least temporarily, a new world. And I just want to say that our strategy isn't the best strategy or the only good strategy, or we're not saying anything other than our strategy is designed to identify companies, not markets, companies that have a consistent, repeatable experience of growing They grow their businesses. They grow their businesses regardless of what's going on in the world. They grow their businesses 
regardless of the one big thing Jordan's about to share with us or the one big thing Ben's about to share with us or the one big thing Billy's about to share with us, they just grow. And so over time, they'll have headwinds, they'll have tailwinds. Rates will rise and they'll get smacked across the face. And, you know, something will happen. And in the short run, we will be directionally influenced by that. But I just want to remind everyone that the average holding at tandem across all three strategies grows its earnings, revenue, and cash flow consistently and repeatedly. And therefore, if they pay a dividend, that dividend grows by roughly 10% per year on average. Not every holding. Some grow less, some grow more. But if we're talking about averages, earnings, revenue, and cash flow growth fuel dividend growth over time that is consistent and repeatable. Price and earnings are correlated. If you own a business that grows its earnings and grows its cash flow to you, the owner, in the form of a dividend, year in and year out, over time, it is reasonable to expect that the value of that company will rise. We're not suggesting it will rise faster or slower than something else. Just that if a business controls the only thing it can truly control, it can't control the price of its stock. It can only control how well its business does. And these businesses that we own have demonstrated the ability to grow. They'll face challenging times, they'll face easy times. What is a challenging time for one business might be an easy time for another business. But over time, they do what they're supposed to do. So that's what I want to add about the tandem portfolio. Now, let's get to the fun part. We implemented this, I think, in Tandem Talk 5 for the first time. One big thing. This can be a topic on anyone's mind. It doesn't have to be investment-related yet so far. Without exception, it always has been. <laughs> but maybe somebody will surprise us one day. But who wants to lead us off? Do not go by the order you see on the notes I prepared. Who wants to start us off with one big thing? I'd be happy to lead off. Go Jordan. for it, Jordan. So my one big thing is Russia. I don't mean to take a page out of Ben's book. I know his one big thing a couple of podcasts ago was China. So I had to pick a country that's even Moving larger. around the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know that there's a lot going on right now in terms of Russia and Ukraine and a potential invasion. But I actually don't want to talk about that. I alluded to it earlier. Russia is one of the largest suppliers of energy to Europe. You've seen an energy crisis take place in Europe. I think it's a nice reminder. I know that to the consumer, the price of the pump is going up. But energy prices in the UK are up 50, 60 percent. That'd be like if your electric bill went up for that much for the same amount of power, right? And that's not happening here. And it's nice that we are somewhat energy dependent and independent here. Um, so it's just something worth. That's doing. a good point. And and they really Europe really did sort of put all their chips on one number when they built that pipeline from Russia to supply them with natural gas. And now a less than friendly regime um, controls the flow of a precious commodity into most of Europe. And they really are struggling with energy prices there. I mean, it's crazy. And it's not just 
the consumer struggling to pay the cost of it. It's the energy provider. It's the it's the electric company that that can't even afford, as you mentioned earlier in this mm -hmm. conversation, Jordan, can't even afford to provide power because their input costs are so much higher than they're allowed to bill the consumer. It's a really crazy time, and I would just I would just sort of add that there are good arguments on both sides of the energy conversation in this country. But there is a lot to be said for being energy independent. I don't care what form of energy that is. You can pick <laughs> you can pick it. You can fill in the blank as to how we should be energy independent. But the fact of the matter is you cannot flip a switch and go from fossil fuels to renewables overnight. Um, we have to transition away from fossil fuels if that's where we want to head. It cannot happen overnight because that is what has happened right. in Europe because they were so aggressive in transitioning to wind and solar that they allowed their fossil fuels to be provided by largely one provider, right? Right. Good point, Jordan. Thank you for that. Who's next? I'll go next. My one big thing I, I think is uh, something that we've talked about in commentary pieces for months, quarters, and the podcast Probably we've talked years. about it extensively. <laughs> we've talked about the change and volatility, and we've touched on that extensively here, so I'm not going to continue to belabor that point. But I think it's important to reiterate, when people think about volatility, they're often talking about volatility to the downside, and that's not what a new volatility regime necessarily means. It certainly can mean more action to the downside, and we've already seen over the past two months. But more importantly, it just means swings in both directions. And you saw that in January. I mean, gosh, what was it? One, at, at least one, maybe two days where we were down three, four percent intraday and closed green. Mm -hmm. That's volatility. If you just didn't pay attention to markets that day, you, you probably think that you had an okay day. Volatility is what happened in between the open and the close during a time in which you basically went nowhere, but boy, did it feel like a lot. That's what a change in volatility regime means. It doesn't mean markets are going to crash or anything like that. It just means it's a bumpier ride than it was before. You're now on a road with a few more potholes than you were before. That's all. I think that's a, I think that's a great point, Ben. And we saw it last week or two weeks ago. You had the largest gain, one-day gain in market cap for a U.S. company. Amazon added $180 billion in one day, <laughs> which followed the largest daily loss in market cap in one day with Facebook or Meta, $240 billion loss. So you're getting these huge swings in stocks, but to your point, not just to the downside, to the downside and to the upside. What happened the day after Facebook reported earnings? Snapchat fell 25% intraday. Didn't say anything, just on the back of Facebook's report, they reported after the bell and the stock shot up 60%. These are 40, $50 billion, that snaps a $50 billion company swinging around like a penny stock. It's the volatility is bizarre. I think that's a great point. I, I thought it was a great point and, and great add on there, Jordan. Billy, it's your turn. So my, my one big thing is, is the yield curve. We, we touched on it, um, about it flattening kind of what the implications of a flattening yield curve are. But I think what's, uh, maybe this is, I tend to be non-consensus, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think what is, what might be non-consensus at this point is, uh, you know, consensus is having, 
what, five, six, seven right hikes this year. If the yield curve can, continues to flatten in tens to twos, twos to tens, however way you want to look at it, goes down 10 basis points a day like, it, like it's been, and we, we were inverted within, we're on pace to be inverted by the end of this week, but um, <laughs> you know, if we're inverted within the next few months, seven, seven rate hikes is not happening. Uh, the Fed will, uh, that will... One rate hike might not even be happening. Exactly. And, and the market almost always overshoots, doesn't it? In terms of expectations for rate absolutely. hikes. Absolutely. And I think we're, we're at this inflation peak, or I wouldn't say peak, but you know, at this, I just feel everything is, we've been gearing up for, for all this inflation talk, Fed tightening, Jordan referenced it, market's forcing the, hand, the Fed's hand right now. And I think the, the market could uh, once again force the market's hand into reversing course um, the infl- the by the end of this year. I, I mean, I'm not predicting that, but it's not out of the realm of possibilities, which would mean what happens? We go through this really volatile time period, whether it be equities, fixed income, Fed put comes in to the rescue, and that could, that could get kind of the next leg higher to equities, but. That is a little contrarian from what we're hearing every day on the news, isn't it? (laughs) I would offer that the Fed actually does have a bit of an out in this sense. You know, there's an old adage that the bond market is smarter than the equity market. And as an equity market participant myself, I would concede that that's probably true. (laughs) (laughs) But... What's different is the Fed now owns what percentage of the sovereign debt of this nation? 60, 70 percent, something like that? Something like that. So the smartest people in the bond market aren't necessarily in the bond market anymore. When you own that much of, of, the, of the credit market, you have a vote that's, that's bigger than most, right? Yeah. And so I, th- I feel like the Fed has an escape route here. They don't have to raise rates. They can just stop buying bonds Mm -hmm. and it all goes away without anything dramatic happening. Now, maybe, maybe that's the glass half full or the, the rose tinted glasses view of the world. But I just, I just for one, have a hard time seeing anybody at today's Federal Reserve pulling a Paul Volcker and just jacking up rates unmercilessly so no i don't think it'd be i don't think it'll be that but i do think it's in some capacity it is the market Mm. huge market participants forcing the fed just to do something to i wouldn't say save face but just to to act to to not have gdp running at five six percent unemployment at four percent inflation at seven and a half percent zero percent Fed funds rate and oh yes we're we're still buying twenty billion dollars of bonds a month. That's not needed. So I think I think the the market is forcing the Fed to do something. I think there is likelihood that it will be just very short lived, that the market will force the Fed to reverse course. So Billy, I think that's very well said. I think this has been a fascinating conversation. I hope everybody listening has enjoyed it. My one big thing is just this. There's a tug of war going on out there right now. You do not have a consensus. This isn't 2017 through 2019 where even though we had some volatility in there, we, everybody was sort of on the same side, right? 
you now have a real tug of war going on. Are we going to have inflation? Are we going to have rising rates? Is the Fed going to just kowtow to the market and, and bail us all out? And there's, there's no real consensus in either way. And so what I want to remind you, the listener out there, is simply this. It will be volatile. It will be up and down. It will be up and down in the same day. We might go up a thousand Dow points and down a thousand Dow points and go home flat, unchanged for the day. And that can be unnerving. But the notion of getting scared and getting out or getting aggressive and doubling down should be avoided. You should always be in. You should be less in or more in, depending upon how much you can stomach. It's our job. You can argue whether we succeed in doing it, but it is our job to control that risk for you so that you are always in and comfortable with how you are in. That's my one big thing. Don't choose between in or out. Stay in and hopefully we can do our job for you and control the level of risk. We should be taking more risk when the odds are in our favor and less risk when we perceive the odds to be against us. If you've made it this far, bless you and thank you. We are concluding episode seven of Tandem Talk, our podcast. I was once again joined by Billy Little, Ben Carew, Jordan Watson. I'm John Carew. I want to thank Elaine Natoli, the director of this podcast and the director of communications at Tandem. This is her baby. This was her brainchild. And we sure do have a good time doing this. And every quarter we get to thank her for it. Uh, we are produced both audio and sound, although I'm not sure what the difference is. But the engineer of this podcast is Margaret White. She's also the voice of Tandem on all of our various written things that are recorded for your audio pleasure. This episode is co-produced by Julia Hoffman. Thank you for listening. Until next time, we're Tandem. Tandem Talk is produced by Margaret White, directed by Elaine Natoli, with music written and performed by Lauren Crepanzano. Nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security, nor construed as financial or investment advice. Tandem Investment Advisors, Inc. does not represent that the securities, products, or services discussed on this podcast are suitable for any particular investor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consult your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. All past portfolio purchases and sales are available upon request.